Hello, this is Ruslan Malinovsky. Hello, this is Roman Yeremchuk. Hello, I'm Sergey Rebro. And you're listening to Ukraine Post Football. The winter break is now. Shakhtar have rounded off 2023 for Ukrainian clubs this week in Japan of all places, while changes are afoot across the UPL and PFL with the opening of the January window just two weeks away. Welcome to another episode of Ukraine Plus Football and its final instalment for this calendar year. Joining us for the Shakhtar and European-orientated episode, who better than Andy Brazel? He returns to the pod for his second appearance. Andy is a European football writer for The Guardian, a broadcaster most regularly heard on TalkSport, or the fantastic podcast that is Football Ramble. And he's also an author, most recently penning the brilliant book, We Play On, which documents the rise and times of Shakhtar Donetsk and how the club have survived during 10 years of exile. It features interviews with current and former players, managers and the hierarchy and delves deep inside the club. It's currently available in all good bookshops, both on and offline, and we're sure Amazon might even be able to get it to you in time for Christmas. Now, Andy, great to have you back with us again. Well, thanks for having me, chaps. Really, it really is great to see you. Andrew is back with us as always. I think he's in England now, I never quite know, but he was in Portugal recently wrapping up the Shakhtar European campaign. How was it for you, Andrew? Well, I think overall satisfactory, all things considered. Uh, the Porto game, a lot of hope was resting on it. The fact that Shakhtar, if they got the win, they would have been in the round of 16. It would have been hugely beneficial for Ukrainian coefficients, for financially for Shakhtar, of course, and even making the round of 16 and even, you know, possibly getting knocked out in there, as we mentioned in the last episode. Um, But from my perspective, the Porto loss, uh, you could say that this season kind of mirrors last campaign. However, it was a bit more, it was was a lot better and a lot improved, in my opinion. Three wins, of course, nine points. Uh, You get the bonuses for winning, of course, financially from, from Shakhtar's perspective. And in general, you felt that maybe Shakhtar had a better chance of making the round of 16 than they did last campaign when they, in that final game against RB Leipzig, they were just completely battered. Like 4-1, they got the consolation a bit later on and it was, oh well, see you in the Europa League. But whereas this time round in Porto, Porto were a lot better and they were the ones that felt like they were, that they were needing a win in that game straight out of the blocks. Um, Sort of a lot of high pressing against Shakhtar that Shakhtar's back line, which is probably the weak spot in the team, struggled with. Um, And especially at the fullback positions too. 
where um, Gotchalashvili, I think, was got at quite a lot. And uh, as a result, five five three <laughs> loss, but high scoring. So I can't complain really in terms of the entertainment that I saw. And you know, some important goals for Danilo Sikan, um, who has been fantastic this campaign. I think the real star for Shakhtar on the basis that he's got four goals and assist in six games. And when you take that into context that he's, yeah, the first Ukrainian player to do so since uh, Andrei Shevchenko two decades ago to do so is is quite an achievement. Of course, Shevchenko at that time scored nine goals in the Champions League for Milan and uh, they, you know, got the golden boot. But still, it's, it's showing that Sakan after his quite difficult campaign last season where he missed the open goal against Celtic. He was in tears in the dressing room afterwards. He couldn't really do much, even when he was sort of coming on um, as a substitute. Now he's become a man, per se. I, I would That's how I would sort of call it. He's got a lot more space to run into in the Champions League. He seems to have put on a bit, you know, of, of strength and conditioning where he can get involved in some of those duels that he needs to against um, the likes of Pepe, uh, and others and he looks a lot more confident on the ball sort of taking on players and, and trying to get involved in in goals where he can and he's shown that and it's been it's been really really quite a I don't know a breakthrough campaign for him I'd say and I think that people he's been linked with clubs I think of late I mean at the start of the war he went on loan to um, Hansa Rostock on loan there, obviously Bundesliga too, but and he got a few goals there, and then he came back to Shakhtar, and people were thinking maybe he might be leaving somewhere, but he's still there, and maybe you know come, I doubt January, I doubt we'll be seeing him leaving in January, but I'm, I'm sure during the summer if Ukraine make the Euros or or anything like that, that he might be able to put himself in the window a bit more, but um, but yeah, overall uh, a fantastic campaign, and I mean. The other player, of course, Horky Sudikov. And um, Andy, you've obviously been following Shakhtar a lot during this campaign as well. What are your mm. thoughts on him and maybe the team's performance in general? I guess probably, on the whole, predictable and a third-place finish, pretty fair, given all the circumstances. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so, Andrew. And I think, um, obviously, as you say, with the opportunity for them to go through on the final game, it was, it was, it was slightly disappointing. But um, the point about the press, I think, is is absolutely right. I think people will look at it on paper and think, how is it that Shakhtar conceded two goals in two games against Barcelona and eight goals in two games against Porto? Well, it's, it's, it's not to do with raw quality. It's to do with the fact that Sergio Conceição has not the best Porto squad that any Porto coach has ever had. But what he does is make sure make sure his teams are really competitive, really physical and really aggressive and they just can live with that defensively. I think you go back to the bit that gave them such a, a bad start in the campaign, the home game against Porto in Hamburg. And um, the, the goals they gave away there, you're not going to win any football matches giving away goals like that. And I think Porto are so atypical when it comes to a Portuguese side like that. You know, they have got a long way in Europe with not the best talent pool they've ever had. But just getting after teams, really, you know, and it's been one of the criticisms, funnily enough, in Portugal of Conceição that he favours physically strong players to technically excellent ones. Now, I would suggest that perhaps he doesn't have the choice with the budget that he has. I mean, we've seen the way Shakhtar play, particularly in Europe, 
evolve as their means have reduced. And I think that when you talk about this season being better than last season, I think it's about the manner, really, the manner in which they've they've played because it was it was just underdog football, really, which you can't imagine sitting that well, Rina Akhmatov, you know, war or not, you know, difficult circumstances or not, because he has a very firm idea on the way the game should be played and it's his club and he's obsessed with it. So um, I think that the, the Shakhtar football in this Champions League campaign was a lot more easy on the eye. Um, and I think they showed they, they could compete with that as well, particularly in the home game against Barcelona, which was excellent. You know, it was the best Shakhtar performance in Europe since... You know, you're going back to one of the Real Madrid games under Luis Castro, really, aren't you? You're, you're, you're looking at that sort of sort of thing. Um, and that Barcelona home game was such a keynote in the, as you say, uh, Sudakov was sensational in that game. You think of, I, I love a penultimate pass and the penultimate pass for the Seacan goal, everything about it, the way he found the space, the backspin on it, so it didn't go out. Um, to allow the fullback to come up and get it. It, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. And um, he got the player of the match in that game. And I think we saw what happened with Mudrik. And I, I don't think we're suggesting, close as they are, that Sudakov is quite as impactful a player as, as, as Mudrik was, partly because of the way in which their players evolved, really, and the way in which they played uh, last year uh, under Juricevic was set up to platform Mudrik really because they, they, they wanted to play on the on the counter-attack and he's the perfect weapon on the on the counter-attack but you know when you look at the fact that Mudrik's value inflated vastly on the back of great performances in the Champions League maybe that's a gentle first step to Sudakov doing that and you, you know you, you're talking about Danilo Sikan there I think you could say the same for him he's, he's obviously matured so much and you know I don't think we're talking about him leave him for 70, 80, 100 million euro or anything like that. But when you look at, I think it's clear that when you look at, I know you're going to talk about Girona later. When you look at how Dovbik has translated great form from the Ukrainian Premier League to being a key piece for statistically one of the best teams in Europe so far this season in one of its best leagues. Um, you know, hot on the heels of... Um, of Sigankov going over there as, as as well, it's clear that when you hear people who are in the Ukrainian game talking about the talent that they think can translate to the biggest stage, that's one thing. But when it actually does translate to the biggest stage, that's a different kettle of fish. You mentioned Sudakov there, obviously, and he's had such a fantastic campaign. And Mudrik's had an interesting time since going to Chelsea. I'm just yeah. very, very curious about this because of some conversations I had when Sudakov first came through. And uh, some colleagues of mine at Shakhtar said, watch Sudakov. He's got his head screwed on the right way. And he's got a very calm and considered manner. And having been around Sudakov, I'm going to ask Andrew your opinion as well on this. Do you think he's more suited and will adapt easier to a move to a big league compared to for example, Mudrik from 12 months ago when he went to Chelsea? I think the question is really, when is it going to happen? Because with Mudrik, it just all happened so fast. And, you know, <clears throat> going from Leverkusen and Brentford haggling over whether they were going to pay 25 million for him to him becoming 
like three months later, four months later, the most exp- expensive player in Ukrainian football history, um, signing for the club that Shevchenko signed for. I mean, you know, that's something to get your head around. And I just always remember the day he was presented at, at Stamford Bridge at halftime in um, the game against Crystal Palace, and he came on with the Ukrainian flag around him. And there's this great footage from inside the tunnel that I'm sure you're familiar with, where he's going on with Dario Sierna, and it's like Serna's like, go on, go on. A, a little bit like a a, a dad taking um, a, a child to like um, receive a prize at school or, or, or something like that. And I spoke to Serna about it afterwards. And he said um, he was asked to go with him because he said Misha doesn't have anyone to go with him. And I, I don't know if it, it felt to me at that moment that, okay, he's, He's on a big mountain, but he's at the bottom of that big mountain. And there's a there's a climb to go. Now, the fact that Chelsea are really unstable, the fact that they've gone through coaches, the fact that they're basically a mulch of talent and it's taking a while to figure out what the discernible plan is. I think if he'd have gone to Arsenal, like, you know, he, he went to Chelsea, Shakhtar got their money, fair enough. But um, if he'd have gone to Arsenal, I think th- there wouldn't have been such a compulsion to shove him in the team every game. Um, and then say, why aren't we getting our money's worth for him? I think they would have been able to sort of drip feed him in a little bit more gradually. Um, and they've got a winning and stable culture at Arsenal as well. That's the other thing you, you, you have to say. So with Sudikov, it's a matter of when he goes and which club he goes to. I know, I know that's like the story of like coaches and managers picking the right move at the, the, the right time. Clearly there's a financial compulsion for... Shakhtar to cash in on players, particularly at the moment. But from the players' perspective, it's all about choosing the right move. Yeah, and I'd add to that, that currently Sudakov is being most heavily linked with Juventus. And I mean, they're not in the most stable um, of periods either. Mm. I know that Allegri gets a lot of criticism. Um, obviously, they're not at the top, top sort of Serie A title contenders per se, at least for the past couple of seasons. And we don't know how much further that will go on because they've had a few flops in terms of transfers, big money ones anyway. Like Vlahovic hasn't really hit the ground running when he went there. Obviously, completely different players, but it sort of just might be a similar impact in terms of the club culture. And of course, from a Sudikov perspective, he don't have to then learn Italian, um, whereas I think he's okay at English at the moment, or he, he'd be able to fairly, well, he's familiar with it anyway, that he'd be able to le- pick it up relatively quickly. Um, and he, he, even though he's very young as well, um, younger than Mudrik, he's in a much more, I guess, stable part of his life. Like he's already got a kid. He's got uh, a wife. And I feel that he sort of knows exactly where he's going and what he wants to do. And, Adding to what Andy said there, that the Chelsea move for Mudrik was just so chaotic and how quickly it all came about that I think even Mudrik didn't know that he was going to Chelsea until that final day, which Mm. also caused psychological problems or whatever, possibly. You know what I mean? Um, So from a Sudikov perspective, I would be shocked if he left in January, to be honest. Like, I know it's going to be mooted about. There'll probably be like Fabrizio talking about him and oh, that there are clubs linked with him and everything like that. And it will be trying to get pushed. But if it's like another one of these where it is quite like sort of like pushed through after 
you know, seemingly like a couple of weeks of something, then I think that might impact Sudakov, especially in this big season that he has got with the Euros potentially coming up at the end of them, where you'd want him to be fully focused on that uh, and, and then go on further. And from a Shakhtar perspective, I think that they could probably make additional money if Ukraine do make it to the Euros. Yeah. And then he puts in a performance. So I feel that they might actually hold out for that, especially with currently the prices being around 30 million euros or something like that. And I think they probably want closer to 50 at, at a minimum, you know, maybe all inclusive com- compared to like what Madrid went for, where it's like 100 with add-ons included, etc. So we'll, we'll see where that comes from. Um, and obviously Shakhtar, well, Sudakov and his whole team, uh, Sakan and everyone else have got uh, the opportunity to show themselves in the Europa League. And uh, I tweeted earlier this week that um, this year is slightly mirroring the 2008-2009 campaign where uh, Shakhtar beat Barcelona in the Champions League. Uh, Then they actually ended up drawing Marseille in the UEFA Cup. And then they went on to win it. (laughs) Uh, In different rounds, of course, they actually drew Marseille in the in the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup, that campaign. But still, um, a lot of people on Twitter in particular, mainly Barcelona fans, are trying to make it a script-writing thing about them, that they might go on to win the Champions League, which I think is actually less likely than Shakhtar (laughs) 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 winning the Europa. But, um, you know, what, what can we expect from Marseille, who they've got in that round of 32 playoff Andy. Well, uh, you you made the point actually about there being a big gap between the the ties being drawn and the ties being played, and so much could change in terms of uh, injuries, form, um, transfers. Of course, I, I mean we'll have no real frame of reference for Shakhtar because they won't have played any more league games by then. Of course. Um, which is either advantage or disadvantage, depending on, on on which way you look at it. But I think, especially for Marseille, it's very difficult to read from now to then because it's a volatile club coached by a very volatile coach at the moment in, in, in Reno Gattuso. So um, they've actually settled down quite nicely recently as at the time of recording. They're in sixth place. Um, they're, on, they're on a really decent run. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's found his form. He's found his form to the extent that after he scored a couple at Lorient last week and he was substituted, he was caught on camera doing an impression of Reno Gattuso while Gattuso was on the touchline, which I think is very unwise, by the way. But it it shows that he's feeling extremely comfortable. Um, I think that the, the fact that Gattuso is such a dominant personality and he's such an easily caricatured personality that I think people often miss the fact that he's, he's actually a pretty handy tactician. And if you look at the jobs that he's taken on, they've all been difficult ones um, in terms of uh, the, the dynamic of the club when he took over at Milan, they were really on the floor. Um, Napoli had really been in mutiny behind the scenes when it, when he took over and he, he got them almost to the, the the Champions League as well, which would have been a remarkable achievement. Um, and then Valencia was difficult enough that he said, well, whoever takes the job next, I, I wish you good luck. But I think what's really worked in, in recent weeks is 
he's, he's a pragmatist. So he's used a system that suits the players best. He's not willing to one particular system. And um, switching to three at the back has really helped them out. Um, they started playing with two up front um, with uh, Vitinha normally alongside Aubameyang. They've been getting the best out of the wing backs, normally Murillo on the, on, on, or Klaus on the right-hand side. And uh, Renan Lodi, who of course was at Atletico and Nottingham Forest and has done well in Champions League, four on the left. Um, so look, there are the players at Marseille. I, I still don't think there's quite the magic of last season. And they miss Alexis Sanchez, because not just because he's a great player, but because he's the kind of bloke who picks the team up by the scruff of the neck and says, right, you're coming with me. And those players are, are worth their weight in gold. Most teams do not have that sort of player who's who's got that sort of personality. Um, so it, it's hard to read. I do think Shakhtar have a chance because, as I said, I think Marseille can be very good on their day, but they're not the equal of the team that they were under Igor Tudor last season. And remember, if it starts badly at the Velodrome, you're going back to 2009. They got absolutely battered in the opening part of, of, of that game, actually. Manish hang on, get back into it and go through. So if they have a difficult 15 minutes, maybe that's a good sign. We're waiting for the omens. That's all uh, hopefully <laughs> this uh, strange 23-24 campaign uh, can bring. Now, earlier on, we mentioned briefly that sort of the Champions League, it's it's the end of another era uh, this season. Things are changing. Shakhtar, even though Ukraine have dropped down the coefficients, still look odds on to go into the group stages automatically next year. In And the... Just for people who were perhaps been living on another planet for a while or not as football obsessed as most of our listeners are, um, what actually is going on next year? So um, there's going to be more teams, more games. Hooray, say the players. Um, it expands from 32 to 36. Um, no group stages, but one big long group. Um, there are four pots, as before, and each team plays eight games instead of six games, but they only play um, the other teams once. So you don't play a another team home and away. You have four home games and four away games, and you have two teams from each pot that, that you play, basically. Um, what that means is at the end of that very, very long group stage, as it, it will feel, it will feel like post-COVID football where we're catching up on the fixtures, um, I'm, I'm sure. Um, you will have... The top eight that qualify automatically for the last 16. Then um, nine to 24 have a two-legged playoff round to decide who goes through to complete the last 16. And the ones below that, 25 and below, are, are, are out. So to me, it seems like despite all the marketing blurb, it is quite a lot of extra football and quite a lot of extra football that won't count. I mean, if from a Shakhtar perspective, maybe it works because if you can finish in that nine to 24, which, you know, arguably is more achievable than the last 16 because they're almost there, but not quite. They not only get two extra games in the group stage, they'll get two extra games of playoff. So if they can get themselves into the Champions League this season, they're going to cash in like not before. I can't think of that many people who will be delighted, certainly players, probably not fans either. I'm not convinced it will provide exciting football to 
match the best of the group stage as it is at the moment. Of course, we've been here with various format changes with the the, the second group stage before, which finished in in, in what two thousand and two, two thousand and three. But I, I think from from a strictly Shakhtar perspective, um, it's, it's something that's really going to help. Yeah, and just to add to that, what Shakhtar need to qualify for the Champions League group stages, they're in this basically best of the rest legacy league table where the past, I think, five seasons, just UEFA coefficients, um, those clubs go into another table and Shakhtar are currently top of that. And if they win the UPL and the winner of the Champions League qualifies automatically via their league system, uh, domestically, then Shakhtar will be in it. So essentially, I, I, it's actually a question I asked Stepanenko after the game in the mix zone. And he said, well, it looks like everyone's got to be supporting Shakhtar then uh, for, for the league title <laughs> um, for, from sort of a coefficient perspective. But but as we've seen in the league, and we'll be touching on that in part two, they're currently not top at the winter break. Mm-hmm. So um, they'll have to do quite a lot of um, winning um, over the course of the second half of the campaign. And just sort of a, to round off the Champions League, uh, UEFA part of this um, section, from the 25-26 season, uh, Ukraine, because, because they currently sit in 18th place in the coefficient tables, they will have only one Champions League spot, uh, one Europa League spot and two Conference League spot. Well, they're losing a Champions League spot. As a result, I think that Champions League person whoever it is obviously winning the UPL from 25-26 or next season, they will be in from the second qualifying round. Unless, I think, Shakhtar go qualify again through one of those uh, legacy tables. So it's going to be tough. And I think it's something we spoke about in the last episode that it's kind of a trade-off between a lot of Ukrainians now, all the best talent moving across abroad to all the top clubs in Europe and performing well there and as a result of the war and not being able to attract maybe some of the former um, high quality foreign players anymore and everything else that's surrounded by it, that the league is going to be in decline. But, you know, at the moment, Shakhtar could help progress that for at least another season two and beyond, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, Just before we sort of wrap up the, uh, the whole Shakhtar section, of course, uh, Shakhtar have been in Japan this week and uh, I want to come over to Ray here because I know that he's been uh, seeing a lot of their stuff on social media this week what do you think about that in general because it's quite a unique marker from a Ukrainian club to well it's not unique from Shakhtar's perspective because they've been very proactive over the past two years in terms of their marketing and even before that but it's 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 brilliant to see that they're going to these sort of new markets and trying to attract like, new fans new investment new interest, not just in Shakhtar, but Ukrainian football as a whole. That's right, Andrew. Actually, you you said it for me there, but uh, the last point you mentioned is that they are representing Ukrainian football, and Shakhtar is nowadays is the only Ukrainian club in the world outside of Ukraine, you know? So outside of that curtain, so to speak, which a lot of players prefer to move a little bit to escape to the European academies and European football clubs instead of playing in UPL, where, uh, where as our most of our uh, domestic players say, the, all the clubs are equal 
apart from Shakhtar, obviously, I've been always saying that. And don't forget their focus uh, on uh, Latin America before. They went to Brazil, I believe, well, back mm -hmm. the, back when they had plenty of Brazilians. So it's it's not new for them. They also expanding to Saudi Arabia in the nearest future, which is suggested by some huge news portals. We're going to touch on that later. But these days, I mean, Japan is one of the places to be. Remember the World Cup 20 years ago? I don't know if they know the players' names, you know. I don't know if they watched the games in Champions League, which Shakhtar played, but or they probably they're going to read the book now, which and Andy wrote. But um, <laughs> the thing is, uh, it's a great... Um, it's a great thing for Shakhtar, but I don't know if it's the good thing for Ukrainian football because now everything Shakhtar does will be put on the same weight as Ukrainian football. And it's not always the thing because Shakhtar itself can make moves which are questionable. And it's only a matter of time since you're expanding your brand as such as you do uh, in, in that in that height. Um, you should be really careful. And in unless Shakhtar itself uh, lives up to this new level of expectation, which I hope they do, uh, but we can never tell, you know? So just saying, you should be cautious, but right now let's enjoy the moment. Yeah, just moving on from that bit about uh, Saudi Arabia. So that's coming out in a report in Bloomberg last week, uh, apparently, so he Palkin, the CEO, he reached out to a Geneva-based sports advisory firm, LRT Sports, that have a base in Saudi Arabia. And there are potential talks with a Saudi Pro League club about a partnership of some kind, FC Al-Tawun, who are currently apparently fifth or sixth in the in the Saudi League. Um, of course, Murray just mentioned that Shakhtar have been in uh, Japan um, just before their winter break has officially started. They did a number of interesting press conferences. They did a lot of marketing in terms of just in the streets, getting lots of photos and things like that. And I'm sure that we'll be seeing plenty more content over the winter break as a result of everything that went on there in that quite small period of four or five days that they that they had there. And from a football perspective, Chapter drew 2-2 against Avispa Fukuoka, who won the Japan Cup this year. And it's another notch in their campaign across across the world, really, because in the summer we saw that they played against uh, Tottenham um, at the, obviously, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium that Andy was also at. And it's like a thing that Shakhtar are being the most proactive of the Ukrainian clubs. And as Ray says that, yes, Ukrainian football and Shakhtar are now kind of synonymous, but that's not really Shakhtar's fault. I think it's more the fault of other clubs not taking it upon themselves to maybe promote their brand as much as they can. I don't want to name any names, but there are, I've heard examples where some, where some clubs have been a lot more lethargic in being open to things uh, and the likes. But, but Shakhtar have always been like that, haven't they? I think you can go back to when they're in the next and Akhmatov and Palkin always wanted to bring in people with an international perspective on things. They wanted to bring, um, Shakhtar and they wanted to bring the city of the next to, to the world. That was, that was their plan really. So that's why they got, um, foreign consultants in, involved in, in, in the first place. Um, and that's why they'd already opened up, of course, the Brazilian market. Uh, what I'm interested to see, and I, I don't know what you think about this guys, but to me, the obvious link with Japan, and yes, as Ray said, there will be a Japanese version of 
uh, we play on coming out next year as well as a ukrainian version uh for your information uh the fact that if you look at say celtic for example now we know shakhtar can't get in top quality brazilians anymore even if they had the money they don't want to come it's it's really difficult to convince them if they can create some sort of meaningful sporting partnership with fukuoka i think that's really interesting because this is an affordable market where you can get quality talent without breaking the bank if it worked for celtic surely it can work for shakhtar just another bit to add up to the brand exposure of shakhtar let's not forget that uh, fc24 still includes donbass arena as their home stadium 10 years after the donbass arena was actually unavailable anymore it's still in the virtual reality world, allocated to Shakhtar. The Japanese market is certainly a very interesting market with a lot of good talent talent there. Just, I was listening to you there, my mind flew back to a conversation, one of the first conversations I had with Alex, uh, Mama Laya, and I hope Alex doesn't hate me for butchering his surname there. But when I when I met him prior to commentating on the Klasichny back in the day, he always said to me, went, Shakhtar is never going to be the most supported club in Ukraine. So we need to be, make sure we are the most, the number one known club outside of Ukraine. And I think they still take that forward no matter what. At that time, it was, the talk was of North America. And Andrew, you'll remember last year, there were a lot of plans put in place for the tour, um, which didn't materialise in the end. But... Uh, you know, now we see Japan, we've seen Brazil in the past, and it's really good that there is a club taking such a proactive step and making sure, yes, they need to make sure everything's clean, uh, but making sure that Ukrainian football is seen across the globe and in a positive light. Now, on the playing side of it, certainly a concern cropped up in the last few weeks about what's going on there. Uh, not only for Shakhtar, but I think the national team as well, because Stepanenko going into the last six months of his contract and no deal in place. And as he quite rightly said uh, to yourself, Andrew, it's something that you think about. He's not been in this situation before, so it's going to be something playing on his mind. What exactly is going on there? Well, I think it's probably too early to tell. To be honest, yes, he's in six months of his contract. It was sort of the first time they hinted it after the game with Porto, where he said, yeah, I've got six months of my contract. I need some insurance for my family. I'm 34, but I'm ready to play. Uh, I understand that maybe some clubs or other people don't want, maybe not want to take a risk on someone who's 34, um, but he's looking at options right now and I think that last year in January we saw Serhii Krivtsov move to into Miami in the MLS he was in the last six months of his own contract there as far as I'm aware and he ended up moving and you know now he's playing football with Messi um and everyone <laughs> and everyone else so I think that's probably one of the transfers of you know of all time um from a from a, that kind of perspective from a personal perspective for Krivtsov and his family of course but Krivtsov is 31, whereas three years in football we know is massive. And obviously we know that Stepanenko has also had 
a lot of injury problems um, over the last few years with his knee in particular. So it's like whether someone, um, I don't think Inter Miami are going to be going for him in all honesty, uh, or that's even realistic. But if anyone else sort of in Europe or in MLS or anywhere else were to go for him. So I guess we'll find out um, in January if anything happens, if it goes towards you know the summer, if anything's added there. And realistically, I think that the best option would probably be Shakhtar giving him a con- uh, renew- renewed contract, you know, at least for another year minimum, because they need him. They don't have a replacement for him. And I don't think there is a replacement for Stepanenko in all of sort of Ukrainian football, per se, who's as good, who's as a traditional number six, who gets involved sort of defensively. He's that understated player that no one really realises is there until he's not. Uh, and then he's really badly missed because Nazarena, he's obviously come in as a transfer. He's probably not to the level of of Stepanenko yet. And then the rest of Shakhtar's squad is all this kind of relatively inexperienced uh, youngsters. So there's no one of serious, I don't know, experience and pedigree in that kind of senior role that possibly could step into that position. I mean, across the UPL in my opinion, or even from like foreign players. Maybe I heard someone like Danilo Ignatenko who's currently at Bordeaux possibly returning. And I don't think that he's up to the level of Stepanenko either. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, I would hope that maybe Stepanenko stays uh, and something happens. But if not, then I think that maybe Schechter might be making a mistake. But, you know, that that's where that's at. Andy. Books had such a great reception since its release uh, earlier this year. But for those who've read it, I'm sure they're really curious to know, what was the whole experience like going through the research process, being so deeply involved with the club? And how does it feel now that, you know, now that the book's been realised and released to the public? Um, well, I, I guess for, for most people who write a book, it's, it's a relief when... Um... It comes out, and I've, so I've felt that before. It's not my first book, um, but on the other hand, the, the, the sense of relief I felt when this came out was 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 greater because um, it's a project that was a while in the making. Um, the genesis of it goes back to well, uh, really a year after Shakhtar left Donetsk, and um, me and a small crew went over to uh, Kiev and Lviv and uh, d- did a film over there. Um, where where we sort of spent some time with the club and at their base at the Hotel Opera in Kiev. And uh, then um, we were at a um, Ukrainian Cup semi, the second leg against uh, Dnipro, as was uh, at, at, at Lviv. And um, after that, I got approached to do the book. It, it didn't quite come off the first time. And eventually we, we came back to the idea. And I, I started the writing process I guess not that long after I'd completed my previous book and I didn't really want to write another book again in such a hurry, but the opportunity to write this, it wasn't so much I wanted to, I felt compelled to, you know, it's a story that I always wanted to tell a story that I knew a lot about. I'd spent time around Shakhtar for well over a decade at at that point, mainly stemming from the fact that I speak Portuguese and they had a lot of Brazilian players. And, um, yeah, it was always a fascinating club to me. And then obviously the story took the twist with uh, the exit from from Donbass. And um, yeah, I felt it was a story that I needed to tell. And I think you feel 
a responsibility as as well when you're you're telling a story that stretches beyond football that stretches to what people have gone through in their lives the fact that i think i say somewhere in the book that um you know no matter the amount of money and and fame you have there's there's no protection from war and you know i really felt that speaking to Cerner, speaking to Stepanenko, speaking to all the, all the people who work for the club, really, and everything they've gone through in their lives. The fact that at the moment they're carrying on um, for Shakhtar in the Ukrainian Premier League and in European competition, only seeing their families very sporadically. It's, it's an unusual existence. Of course, there are people um, on the wrong end of the war waged by Russia who, who have it a lot worse. I think we realise that. But the players and staff of, of Shakhtar are not in an easy position either. Now, maybe from a certain perspective, they are almost better prepared for these extraordinary conditions that Ukrainian footballers and Ukrainians in general are, are living at the moment just because they have been on the road since since 2014. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think it's true. But I, I felt at, at, at once... I felt I felt a lot of responsibility in telling these people's story, but I also felt um, a lot of positivity from it because the strength of those people, and you know, I'm not just talking about the players and the coaching staff. Everyone who works at the club and everything they put themselves through to to keep it going, um, I, I felt honoured to tell their story, really, and. Um, I felt that you know no one knows when the end of all this is 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 going to be, but that they keep going, that they won't be beaten, that they won't let their spirits be deflated. They're just extraordinary, really. And you know we see that with normal Ukrainian people. Obviously, this isn't just a football thing. Even though the thing I was covering was specifically the the football club, but um, yeah, their their ability as well to keep the story of Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine and to Ukraine in the public eye. I, I just think it's, it's extremely valuable to be able to do that. And they're, they're very keen to carry on telling that story and make sure the world doesn't forget about it. Cavi Moreno bene, Shevchenko nello spazio, va via Shevchenko accelera, salta tutti Shevchenko, cerca la conclusione, Andre! Shevchenko! Now, the UAF presidency is up for grabs, and there has been one candidate confirmed. I believe it's a name that will be very well known to our listeners. Mr. Andriy Shevchenko is uh, up for nomination. The 24th of January will be the vote. Let's see who will be on his team. It's going to be a very interesting time to see how the future of the UAF will be shaped. Now, moving to domestic football, Dinamo had an interesting time over the last month. Ray, what's been going on? Uh, they're claiming to retain their position as uh, position as number one key, uh, capital club in Ukraine uh, since they uh, won the last uh, Kyiv derby, thanks to um, uh, ballet and uh, false VAR decisions. But uh, we'll get back to that next season, hopefully, if Oblen survives in the top top flight tier. The point is, 
Dynamo has uh, a uh, and a coach appointed, which who is um, Alexander Shokovsky, and he's Dynamo heart, and he's bringing back the old good two nil victories for Dynamo when they have to just you know uh, play from uh, their class, you know they show class, and that's the class victory two nil, simple as that. Maybe next year he's gonna introduce the old, good old uh, three points home, one point away scheme why not they have games in hand and they if they win all of them they can claim the top of the table um we discussed that plenty of times before uh this is not a renaissance for me this is just what's coming when you change something you expect it to bounce back how long that's the question i think their games in hand was it veras at home then zaria manai away we're talking some poor teams there. <laughs> so there's a very good chance that Dynamo could win those and potentially take their place back at the top. The Actor also have a few games in hand to, to get up on par with the rest of the teams in the league. Shauna Moritz and Zaria both away from home. Well, in fact, with Shakhtar, as Andy quite rightly said, every game has been away from home for 10 years now. So it's something they're quite used to. Uh, speaking of Zoria, sadly we do. Uh, but for how much longer? Who who actually knows? Um, the new manager. Uh, we we have favourites. I'm surprised. I am very surprised by the name that's sort of popping up across the media circles. Uh, Ray Atterveld, who was PVL's assistant, he's now the favourite to have have the job. Another thing to mention about Oberlin quickly is that uh, our star player from U21, uh, under-21 Ukraine national team, uh, Igor Krasnopir, was um, featured in the uh, list of uh, top fastest players in um, all leagues in Europe. And Mudrik is not there apparently because he didn't play 720 minutes. And these guys did. Apart from Krasnopir, it's also Timchik from Dynamo and Sigey from Zoria. So they're some football research center posted these ratings. I don't know how um, how representative it is, but it's the fact, you know, it's like how fast you run and how good you perform. We'll see. Keep an eye on those three. Maybe they will run even faster next. On a more interesting note, more curious note for me, is what's going on in hockey at Metalist 19.5. The Renaissance Revolution, the... I'm just very curious what's happening there. But Mr. Skripnik is poised to take charge. Right. Can you believe that one, right? Well, uh, it's a good step to take. It's the coach that has reputation, but not the one that we would be praising. Me personally, because let's not forget 2020 post-COVID season, Zoria Desna, the battle for silver medals, and Skripnik bottles it for, for Zoria. Historical achievement for the club that we are... Sorry to mention now, because as you just said, Adam, they're not living through the best times. But that was apparently that could have been their historical achievement. And maybe they couldn't even climb that high anymore any in, in any point in the future, neither. So that was it. And Skripnik has to pay for that. I have to remind you, Skripnik has to pay for that because that was an image and an example of... Uh, the um, cowardness in football, okay? That was anti-football at, it, at its best. And I'm not talking Mourinho anti-football. I'm not talking parking the bus. I'm talking about 
sportsmanship, the lack of sportsmanship. Whereas now, Zoria, all they care about is sportsmanship because they don't pay to players on time. They don't invest in brand exposure. They don't even have a sponsor in their kids. They don't invest in uh, SMM. They don't invest in press conferences, in anything, anything that could cover their matches in any depth. They invest in players and coaches. And that's what you need from a football club, basically. Who could argue with that? That that's the, These are the guys who make the difference on the pitch. Off the pitch, that's what Medalist 1925 has recently been about. Let's hope that um, maybe not at the coaching, you know, uh, at, the, at the bench where Skripnik comes. Uh, maybe that won't be a huge change. But apart from that, that could bring, you know, like they say, oh, we need uh, Scott Carson in our dressing room because he's not playing, but he's creating the atmosphere and the ambience. Maybe that would bring the overall um, flourishness to the club. Let's let's hope that because Harkin needs that. Let's be honest. We've let Andrew have a few minutes breather, but if we're going to talk about Policio, we really need to get him back in the room, don't we, Ray? We can't mention the new stadium that's been proposed in Jitomir without coming to Andrew for a few words. Yeah, absolutely. So their director of marketing um, and development and exposure and sponsorships, uh, Alexander Denisov, has shared an image of the new proposed stadium that Polisia and uh, their billionaire owner, of course, Hennady Butskevich, is planning on launching in early 2024 as far as i'm aware they're going to sort of release all the details as in what's going to happen there but an artist's impression has been revealed and it looks pretty cool looks pretty modern looks quite nice Ten thousand seat stadium however in jetomet of course uh that will not be rebuilding the municipal stadium that we all know that's like half a ground and rat running track and all that it's going to be com- something completely different as far as i'm aware so that will be interesting to see. Obviously, it shows police's ambitions, um, currently fighting for those European spots up at the top of the UPL. Um, I'm sure that there will be heavy investment in the squad during January as well. So Butskevich is there for the long run, per se. And that's what a lot of journalists who had a meeting with Butskevich and with Denisov over the past weekend have also been saying that there are a lot of ambitious plans for the club and they want to sort of take it very seriously. Of course, with the stadium talks, there's already been a lot of debate per se, I think in um, Ukrainian social media, as in, is it really beneficial to be building a brand new stadium during wartime and the possibility of obviously that getting targeted and, whether those costs could be invested in something else. But I mean, I guess if they're private costs of a billionaire, you can't really be complaining for, from that perspective. You know, if it's if it's city costs or something like that, that's a complete other story, then that would cause a massive scandal, of course. But yeah, that that that's where police currently are. And, you know, it seems quite positive. And I mean, looking at it right now, the kind of top five that we've got at the moment, for one last time, I think it seems quite likely that that top five will remain the top five, possibly going in towards the very late very late stages of the league. And I think that Polisia are odds-on to make one of the UEFA comps uh, at a bare minimum. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and just before we sort of 
move on from the UPL chat. I just want to talk about Uruk, that a lot of their players have currently got a bit of interest from European clubs. Um think uh, Bogdan Slubik, he's catching the eye of apparently Wolfsburg, but more seriously Lazio. Um, Ilya Krasnitsa being followed by Girona and even Yuri Klimchuk, um, who, I mean, he's had a lot of talk and I don't know whether he is the kind of player that you think is like completely amazing, but Plymouth Argyle, Apparently had a bid rejected for him in the summer. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Plymouth put in like a 500,000 euro bid or something like that. And that was rejected by uh, Ruch because they wanted more. But, you know, this this is the level of the of the UPL now that you will. If you have examples of positive moves of Ukrainians, such as Dovbik and um, Tsankov and everyone else, you know, even Yarmuluk at such a young age, it sort of does well for the rest of the league. And there will mm-hmm. be, you know, scouts, etc., looking at players everywhere. And I'm sure that those guys aren't the only ones that we'll be seeing or hearing about going forward. So interesting times. You have to say that the investment that Rob made into their academy is known all across Europe, you know, every everybody's fully aware of the fantastic development they've had there. And we've seen the run they've had appear popping up now in the youth uh, champions leagues over the last couple of years. People will watch no matter what. And with the performance of the under 21 national team last summer, it's a great time for young Ukrainian talent. And hopefully it won't just be rock. I mean, this is would I be right, Andrew? In your opinion, it's like the first graduating class of the academy there. And I know last time we talked about it potentially being a short-term project, but if they see the finances, the return on investment, this could, you know, prolong, shall we say, Rook's place at the at the, top, the upper end of Ukrainian football. Absolutely. So fingers crossed that. Maybe Kozlovsky and the Ruch get a bit more realistic in terms of what they're asking for, um, because that could also become a maybe a negative in this perspective, where they're asking for a bit too much when they could really, you know, sell for relatively low, but with high sell-on clauses, which if they are as confident, you know, about their players' uh, abilities to develop, etc., then they should be making some fine money in the future as well, which is something that um, Dynamo have actually uh, done, despite the fact that, uh, you know, Sorkis has been called um, a bad businessman <laughs> over the past <laughs> few years. I've enjoyed uh, in England, you know, it's, for me, it's uh, everywhere great people, like every, every, everyone smiling and just uh, give you positive energy. In an episode full of great stories, we have to talk about Bournemouth and the role that Zabani has had in transforming, and I will use the word transforming, this Bournemouth team over the last month or so in the EPL. A bit of credit to the coach there as well for getting the team playing, but 
it's absolutely incredible. Week in, week out, we talk about Ilya Zabani as almost the leader of a team. And correct me if I'm wrong here, gentlemen, there are some rumours that some clubs, bigger clubs further up the food chain are watching his performances here. And there could be a potential bid coming in, I would say, over the summer for him. Potentially. We'll have to wait and see, to be honest. I think it's very much uh, too early to tell. I think the, the rumours per se are Spurs coming in for him again, but the fact that they missed out on him the first time and didn't want to pay 20 million or so, they're now going to have to pay double that minimum, really. I think that Bournemouth aren't a club themselves that are short or strapped for cash. They've got super wealthy uh, American owners, and I think they're going to be asking for probably upwards of 40, 50 million for him, to be honest, uh, especially if they keep on going at the pace that they are at the moment. Sadly, the game obviously against Luton um, was was abandoned because of what happened to Tom Lockyer, but they're on a good run. They're on a great run, obviously beat United who are in crisis. They've got some uh, positive wins before that as well. And if they finish, you know, in a non-relegation battle, per se, towards the second half of the season. And, you know, they push on, really. Zabani at the moment, played every minute of every game in the Premier League. Um, it just shows that there's a lot of faith in him. There's a lot of praise for him as well, not just from uh, Ukrainians themselves, people watching, but also a lot of um, the British media. Um, his own teammates, uh, Phil Billing, has been has had a lot of high praise for him as well. So he is obviously valued within the team too. And, you know, it, it's great to see at such a young age. But I mean, he's been beyond his years from the day he made his debut for Dynamo. And mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware, I think that Dynamo, if he obviously does go for 50 million or whatever, they'll be getting a handsome chunk <laughs> uh, of that future fee as well. Can guarantee it. Absolutely guarantee it. Now, of course, it's really surprising to be talking about this, but given Lunin's upturn in performances for Real, Andy, Trubin or Lunin, who is your number one for the national team? Lunin, for me. I, I just think, really, the opportunity that he's had at Real Madrid has underlined how, how good he is over the last little while. And I, I think Trubin has the highest ceiling, I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say. Um, even though they're both relatively young. But um, what has become abundantly clear since um, Kepa got injured at Real Madrid is that Kepa is only the third best goalkeeper at Real Madrid. It is that simple. Um, Lunin has the confidence of his, his defenders. Um, he's, he's got really great presence. Now, I think really that's what separates him from Trubin at the moment. And Trubin is, is settling at a massive club with huge expectation that is, their every move is followed at Benfica. You know, you think of, of Portugal as a, a nation of under 10 million people. Yeah, that may be true, but most Portuguese people will tell you 7 million of those support Benfica. You know, it's, it's a huge amount of pressure. Um, I think he's found that out from the fact that they've fallen short in the, the, the Champions League and they've, they've got a lot of stick for it um, in, in the national media. And for him, following on, from a goalkeeper in Vlakodimos who was underrated but very reliable. Um, it's, it's a tough ask. And the, the, the fact is that if you make one mistake 
um, that costs you in the Portuguese league. Every time Benfica, Porto or Sporting drop points, it's, it's treated like some sort of catastrophe. So he can't afford to make any 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 mistakes, you know. Um, and he's still, in terms of his judgment, when he needs to come off his line, when he come, needs to come and get the ball and, and when he doesn't, um, I've got no problem with his shot stopping at all. That needs work. I think Lunin is a little bit further ahead with that. And he's not let Real Madrid down at all so far. So for me, he's the clear choice for the national team. Well, um, Rubin, I think, let's not, I, I agree with you, Andy, that he's behind Lunin in terms of the development uh, part of his career. And I guess that's a lot to do with the fact that Lunin has been at Real Madrid for a while now, I think over four years. Um, he's had, well, he's been the understudy to Courtois, one of the best goalkeepers in the world to work under all the time. He's had a few loans that may not have been the most productive, but he's finally getting his chance. And the fact that Lunin started against Villarreal in the Liga last weekend shows that I think Ancelotti is leaning towards um, Lunin as his first choice, even though Lunin didn't actually face um, any shots other than the goal that he conceded. Real Madrid won 4-1 and, you know, going forward, I'm sure that there will be opportunities for Lunin to show more of his quality. And I think the problem that has been Lunin's issue, especially from the national team perspective, is that the fact that he never plays, you can't just come into... The goalkeeper, I think, is the most difficult one where you can't just come in out from the cold. You need to have a feel for the goal line. You have to have a feel for, you know, the post, just to understand the spacing of when you come out, don't make rash decisions, all that kind of stuff that... Now that he is playing, I think it's going to be a, you could call it a pleasant dilemma for Rebrov, um, given um, come March when the playoffs happen. And speaking of Trubin, of course, man of the match performance against Braga at the weekend. Mm. Um, absolutely sensational sort of save deep into added time. Got it out with one of his dangly foots because obviously he's an absolute giant. And um, a lot of Benfica fans praising him on social media. And as Andy said, they can be a bit fickle as well. So fingers crossed that uh, Trubin can actually just develop that and continue positively because, you know, a win against Braga, one of the sort of title challengers per se up there in uh, Liga Portugal, they can continue with that. And um, fingers crossed, you know, that, that that continues for a while. Andrew, Girona absolutely making waves in La Liga. Played again this week. How's it looking? Well, it's it's safe to say that Drone are still top. Uh, we were obviously speaking about them in our last episode with Vitali giving us some updates on him obviously following a lot of their games this season. So it's really good to see that the team are doing so well. Dovbic in free scoring form, scored against Barcelona the other week. Tankov assisting, then Tankov got injured ahead of the game with Alaves. He might not be even be available for their game against Betis in the week. But regardless of Tankov being missing, Dovbit got a brace and now he's on 10 goals and uh, four assists in La Liga, which means he's only behind Jude Bellingham in both the goal scoring charts and also the goals and assists, goal contributions charts as well, where Bellingham has only won more than him. Uh, but for goals, he's got, I think, three more. Dovbik, 
he I think is the ninth fastest player to reach 10 La Liga goals. He's done it in 16 appearances. He's got the second most headed goals in the top five leagues in Europe this season. So he's one behind Harry Kane. Uh, Harry Kane's on five, Dovbik on four. And as well as that, that if you look at all of the teams that have had 44 points after 17 game weeks in La Liga over the past like two decades, maybe three, then out of the four teams that had 44 points that were leading the table, only one of them didn't win it. And that was like Real Madrid in 2010, 2011. So another good possible omen uh, for Girona there and for our Ukrainian boys who I'm sure, you know, there's already rumours that Dovbik or Sankov might be moving this winter. I don't think that's going to happen, to be honest. A bare minimum in the summer or even after that, if they qualify for the Champions League, which looks very likely, they could well stay on um, for that debut campaign for this team. Now, we couldn't finish an episode without some PFL for you, ladies and gentlemen. It's been, uh, even though they shut down a month ago, there's been plenty of news stories. The FSC Mariupol kit design composition certainly caught the attention of a number of people on social media. And Andrew, you've shown some interest in it. Ray, has it caught your eye? Yeah, apparently that's the white green team from Wijgorod, where uh, Mariupol is based now. And they have just uh, uh, updated their crest Sorry, uh, after the apparently uh, fan suggestion, uh, good old... Uh, um concept maker from ukraine has finally approved has has had his uh, design finally approved uh which is a good example but let's not forget that fc fsc mariupol is uh, funded by a crypto uh, platform kyrex so it's uh, we should talk more about the metalist 925 vibes here which uh, shows um a good um, example, I guess, because they are quite innovative in terms of their fans' approach, at least. Let's say that um, they might be even um, uh, positioning themselves as um, not as the Mariupol club, let's say, right? Because we know that Mariupol, the original Mariupol, has fans all the way in Brazil. So it's, it's going to be hard to beat that. Final piece of news for today. May, may remember back to the last episode, we mentioned that Problems were afoot at Neva Bazova. However, solutions have been found. Andrew, who's who's took over there now? And is funding looking okay to continue a potential UPL push in the spring? Currently, it's slightly up in the air. Uh, last week, the club announced a post saying that FC Kudrivka, who are currently in Druhaliha, their club president, has become the new owner of Niva Buzova. Uh, Kudrivka is a Kiev Oblast side um, and themselves came up from uh, the amateurs just last season. So we will have to wait and see how this will pan out. Will Kudrivka and Niva Buzova sort of merge together? I've seen a bit of a backlash from Niva Buzova players one of them, Serhichuk, he posted a, uh, a screenshot on his Instagram relating to a post from a lawyer who said that it's not relatively fair to let all of these players go, etc. And then suddenly there's a brand new owner and, and everything's happening. So I think there will be complications. 
with everything that's going on. So as far as I'm aware, Neville Buzzard did fold and cease to exist. Everyone got let go. And now that there is new funding, etc., things will have to be approached from a, a new perspective. But that's Ukrainian football for you. Always some sort of chaos um, in you know ownership. And all I'm hoping for is that at least the club is all okay and that the players that have been obviously affected by that um, are able to find new clubs or at least come back to Buzova if if all is stable. But, you know, we have to wait and see on updates because other than sort of a small Facebook post, there's not been much more. Thanks for that. I mean, as you say, though, you never quite know what's going on with clubs here in Ukraine. That's why a book like Andy's is so purposeful as, as well as an enjoyable and insightful read. It gives a real good look behind the closed doors of a Ukrainian club. Shakhtar, as we know, is a bit more open and willing to let people know what's going on. But it's it's given a real great insight into all of the challenges that they've had to overcome over the last 10 years. For those of you who haven't read it, if you haven't got it on your Christmas list, get out there in the January sales. The Amazon people, as they say, will be more than willing to whisk it to your front door, wherever you're listening to this. Um, also, I have to say, if you haven't listened to the excellent football ramble, say it multiple times during the week and available across all platforms. It's a great listen. Andrew and I spent many hours driving across Ukraine listening to episodes and always had good giggle alongside great insight. So do tune into those as well. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the end of our uh, 2023 Ukrainian footballing adventure with the podcast. It's been a great year and we've seen Ukrainian football shone in a great light. Ray, Andrew, it's been such a privilege to share this adventure with you. Before we go, one question for both of you. What was your highlight? I know which one was mine. Right. Which one was yours? <laughs> Beating the French in the quarterfinal. Oh, yeah, the Rotan, the Rotan team. Legendary. Yes. Uh, of course, living, well, living here and watching the French lose, ah, I was able to enjoy that for many a month. Okay, good to know. <laughs> well, um, obviously the uh, victory in uh, Kiev Derby uh, right after the promotion of Obolon, that was, that was a huge moment. That really helped me, you know, motivated me to establish myself in uh, in a new country, which is Mexico. So yeah, it really pushed my spirits high. And the the, the loss in the recent derby did not uh, drain my spirits. So <laughs> we're still we're still running high, and uh, yeah, uh, hoping for a marvelous year. Good man. Andrew. Yeah, I loved that Euro uh, under-21s campaign. It was really, really good fun. And I'd have to say the run to the semis that sort of got us going. And the fact that we're in the, the Olympics next year. So plenty of stuff, even if the Euros maybe don't work out, we've got a fallback option. <laughs> but of course, the Euros will work out. So um, hope that everyone has enjoyed obviously our episodes this year they've been a bit more sporadic but hopefully insightful as always and similarly um hopefully everyone has a good new year and obviously 
happy Christmas, not on the 7th of January, because that is a thing of the past. And, and hey, guys, remember when Conoplanca made it to Wembley this year? Where is he now? Oh, yes. Until 2024. Take care and goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,